and we think of it on the way, we'll just stop and, uh, and announce it. But my announcement is we're really happy to see you today, and we're glad that you chose today to be with us. If you're visiting with us, don't consider yourself uh, a stranger or a visitor or just a guest, but just be part of our family today. This is a special family day, and we want you uh, to feel very much part of it. Uh, I'm going to trans, uh, transition us kind of quickly into our scripture passage for the day. And you may have noticed as it was scrolling through that uh, our scripture today is going to be taken from an Old Testament story found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And if you're asking where 1 Samuel is, that's a good question. Not a lot of people quote that. Not a lot of people spend their time there. But there's some phenomenal stories in the Old Testament. And there's some great lessons to be learned. By the way, 1 Samuel is the ninth book of the Bible, so if you start at the front and just kind of work your way through, uh, just a few hundred pages in, and you'll be at Samuel, 1 Samuel, and we're going to take you right to chapter 1, and um, if you have a Bible app or whatever else you might be using, uh, just get it up to 1 Samuel chapter 1 if you would. In the message this morning, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a disclaimer here. We're going to take, I'm going to take a new approach, what I call a different slant on this very special day <clears throat> that we call, what do we call this day? Mother's Day. All right. How many of you knew it was Mother's Day or you didn't know until Mother reminded you this morning? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, truth goes a long way, doesn't it? So the title for the message is, you say, oh, this is to the mothers. Woo! Guys, you're just wiping your brow and taking a big breath and you're off scot-free. The title of my message is, Father's Mothers and questions. Let me ask you, did you ever stop to think that Mother's Day is a very, well, let's just say it is not a very happy day for women who are unable to have a child. Occasionally, they have to deal with thoughtless comments, and I've talked to people that are in that category, to ladies who are in that category, and sometimes they have to answer questions or they have questions posed to them, uh, heartless questions, unfeeling questions like, how long have you been married and you don't have any children yet? Don't you like children? Oh my, oh my, you were married? Oh, it sure took you long enough. Now, there's a lady in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that you're going to love to meet. Her name is Hannah. How many have ever known anybody by the name of Hannah? Let's see. That's almost, yeah, that's a majority. Hannah bore, how many of you know the story of Hannah from the Old Testament? Okay, a few of you. Hannah bore this imposed shame. A shame of this plight, and it was a plight back in her day, living in a culture where having children was especially important, where the stigma of childlessness was very severe. It's almost like living in, well, the only thing you could compare it to today would be living in, uh, uh, being in a line of succession, living in a country that has royalty. <clears throat> because when royalty marries, they're expected to have at least two children, and they call them the air and the spare. That's right. And so it was this kind of thinking, and this is where this came from, Old Testament thinking. Um, and you're having a little discussion there now, trying to figure out which is the spare. So um, I'll let you talk that over with your kids when you get home. Um, 
every Jewish woman hoped to be the one who was going to give birth to the Messiah. And Hannah's grief is amplified by having to live with another woman. Her name is Penina. How many of you know anyone by the name of Penina? What are you laughing for? Straight in the Bible, look it up. 1 Samuel chapter 1. How many of you have heard and are familiar with the story of Penina? Uh, nobody. Okay. And you say, well, that's not the way to pronounce it. Yes, it is. So, pronounce it your way. If you choose to be wrong, that's up to you. <laughs> Hannah's grief is amplified by having to live with, at, or near this woman who was able to have children. So Hannah knows the problem is not with Elkanah, her husband, or their husband. These two wives, can I just suggest, didn't get along. You can imagine Penina saying, maybe God knows you wouldn't make a very good mother, Hannah. That's awful nice. And Penina be becomes Hannah's rival, probably mocking and provoking her and bringing her to tears many times. And, and this is right now, as much as I've preached already, it's a good argument against polygamy, isn't it? So in contrast, we're told that Hannah's husband went out of his way to show his love. He compensated Hannah for her loss. He doubled her gifts, according to Scripture. He tells Hannah that with or without children, she was still the most precious thing to him and always will be, simply for who she was, not for whether she had children or not. Nonetheless, Hannah says in verse 8, I think we can put that one up on the screen, her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? By the way, I want to zero in on that word downhearted. It's the word we use today, translated depressed. You know, Hannah's one of several women in the Bible who waited a long time before being able to have children. For example, Sarah. Hmm? She was promised a son. But after waiting for a very, very long time, she encouraged her husband, who was her husband, who was Abraham. Abraham. You got to answer quickly because lunch is waiting, folks. Um, <laughs> to have a child through a surrogate. The surrogate was Hagar, and the child's name was Ishmael. And if you know the story, and if you don't, and you call yourself a Christian, you need to go home today and start working on your history of the Bible because you haven't got a clue what's going on in the world around you unless you know this story of Abraham and Sarah. Because she was barren, even though she'd been promised of by God that she would bear a son, she said, well, we've waited too long. Abraham, do what you have to do. Take the handmaiden. And, and, and she will give you uh, offspring. And he did. And Ishmael was the result of that. And if you knew the story, you'd know that this was a great lap. The man of faith. This was a great lapse of faith. And it produced the very root of the Arab-Israeli conflict in the Middle East and around the world to this very day. And it is a never-ending family feud. It's not all. It's not political. They've politicized it. It's not just geographical. This is a family feud that's been going on since Abraham's lack of faith. 
Now, in our culture today, women are no longer defined in value only by their ability to bear children. Yet, childlessness continues to be a painful reality for many women. Eugene Peterson wrote this, quote, We read no children, and immediately we're in a world of longings, frustrations, tears, and prayers. I'd like to offer a few scriptural principles then on this Mother's Day, especially for the women who have not been able to have children. And, and then I want to move on to a few other aspects of motherhood and parenting and family life. First of all, let me remind, remind us all, and this is first and foremost, anyway, this is the a priori argument, God is in control. He is sovereign. His timing is different from ours, always, which means his plan may not agree with how we may think things ought to be. How many have already discovered that in life? God decides when, where, and to whom children will be given. He has his reasons. I've talked to him about that many times. I'm glad he has his reasons. We, we can be comforted in knowing that there is a why, even though we may not be able to figure out God's purpose. We also need to recognize that if God gave us all the reasons behind all the decisions, we still might not be able to grasp it. Why? Because Isaiah 55, 8 says that his ways are far above our ways. The next thing I want you to see real quickly is children are a blessing. Amen, parents? Amen, grandparents? Yeah. You should have the loudest amen because you can send them home. But that's your problem. Just because... A woman may not have children. It does not mean she is not blessed. I want you to hear that very carefully. God blesses us in many, many ways. It's easy to incorrectly assume that since children are a blessing, not being able to conceive or to have children is a curse. Wrong. When people marry, they often feel that they're supposed to have children. Get this. The only thing we are supposed to do as married couples is to seek and accept the will of God for our lives, period. Now, a key principle of life, we often miss this or we kind of skate over it. I want to stay with it for a minute. A key principle of life is that personal fulfillment is found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. See, if you want to be truly fulfilled and happy, that's the direction you've got to be heading. Uh, True happiness is not conditional on our circumstances. That's why when you're asked, if you're a believer, how are things going... And you say, well, I'll tell you, you shouldn't ask me today because I'm not very happy. And why aren't you? Well, because under the circumstance, wait, 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 wait. Happiness is not conditional on our circumstances. We can learn contentment regardless of what direction our lives may take. Seeking fulfillment in any person or anything other than in the will of God will still only leave us longing for things that will not satisfy us anyway. 
See, so when we make people or things the criteria of our happiness, we are dangerously close to idolatry. Because longing for something is not a sin, but refusing to be happy without it will lead to bitterness. I was recently looking at a copy uh, of the Serenity Prayer. Anybody here familiar with the Serenity Prayer? Ever heard of it? Ever seen it in print? Know it? Maybe memorized it and so on? And everybody put their hand up. I'm going to make a guess. I hope it's an educated guess. That you've likely heard it many times, but probably you only heard the first part of it. Would you allow me to read the prayer in its entirety? God grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In your little wall plaque, that's probably what it says. Now, here's the rest of that prayer. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. When I read that, can I just give you a little confession? That opened a whole new world to me on the serenity prayer. That really jumped up. Because I've seen that serenity prayer in different places before. And I thought, oh, that's just a cute little thing somebody dreamed up. But when I read the rest of that prayer, it started jumping out at me. You asked uh, Pastor Bob, how do we get through how do we get through a year? How do we get through a month? How do we get through a week even? By being convinced that God has a plan for our lives. I'm going to say it again because you're going to ask it again. By being convinced that God has a plan for our lives. If you're not convinced of that yet, then you've got some work to do, but you can get to that point. See, as we try to determine where we fit in, God leads us. Aren't you glad? I heard Brian Houston preach on this a few nights ago. Man, he was just spot on. It was tremendous how he, how he just made this come to life. That we are created by God for his purpose, not for our purpose. And the purpose is to bring honor and glory and praise to his name. Not to our own selfish desires. How do I get through the week? By being convinced God has a plan for our lives. How does he lead us in our lives? Through circumstance, through the Bible, through counsel of others, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. These are all ways that work together, knowing that God is teaching us, God is leading us, God has not forsaken us. We don't wander aimlessly when we're relying on God. You say, well, it feels like it sometimes. It shouldn't. Because when we're relying on God is when and where we find our calling for life. We don't have to see a burning bush. Moses did. That was quite a story. And we don't have to hear the audible voice of God. Some have. But God impresses us within. And he confirms within that his plan is right. Even through many subtle means, he will do this. Uh, Augustine declared this, he said, faith must hold what it cannot yet behold. 
<laughs> Simple. Profound. Faith must hold what it cannot yet behold. That's why we stand up here we, so often, and I know some of you just love to do it, and, and we sing, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. <laughs> hope those aren't just words. I hope those are just hymns of praise flowing out of your heart and soul. You're, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. That's who you are. And I am blessed. And I am loved. And I am cared for. And I am led by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. That's who I am. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. And if you just flip to, back to 1 Samuel 1, that scene that we just pictured is now going to shift after verse 8. And it goes to Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is a place of prayer and worship. And you'll see that in verse 9 if you're following along. I'm not going to read all those verses. Elkanah and his family made the annual pilgrimage to Shiloh, as was the custom of Jewish people. And it was about 20 miles from their hometown of Ramah. And that was the nearest modern city today would be Tel Aviv. Uh, You've probably heard of that. It was the most important place of worship during approximately 200-year period from the end of the Jewish conquest under Joshua to the establishment of the monarchy under King David. Under David, what happened? The tabernacle was replaced by the temple, and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were at Shiloh. So the Levite priests led devout worshipers in that holy tent, and all of the Jewish people in the region came there on their annual trek. So we see in verse 10, if you're watching and if you're looking and if you're following with a a, a thumbnail there, Hannah turns to prayer. She's not just going there for a vacation. She's just not going there for, to put in some time to see all the things they are to see in Shiloh. She's there for a purpose, and she turns to prayer. And, though her, and I want us to keep this in mind. Though her husband is a loving, accepting, and compassionate man, Hannah has needs that he cannot meet. And when he asks, aren't I more precious to you than many sons? I want you to notice something in Scripture. She doesn't answer. Yeah, it's just as quiet as it is here right now. He he asks her that compelling and searching question. She doesn't answer. Her prayer is provoked by pain. It's accompanied by tears. Look at verse 11. She makes a vow before God that should he grant her a son, that son will be dedicated to serve God as a Nazarite. And her prayer anticipates both getting and giving. You see, the Nazarites were a holy order of men who were devoted to serving God wholeheartedly with their whole lives. And their commitment was marked by abstinence, abstinence from alcohol, abstinence from haircuts, and the most famous Nazarite in all the Bible was, was Samson. The haircut should have been a key for you. So the most famous Nazarite in all the Bible was Samson. Then if you go to verse 12, 
You see Hannah praying in solitude. She's praying in silence. But that prayer does not go unobserved. Eli, the presiding priest of the Shiloh sanctuary, is at his post and he's observing her. And he's watching this soundless movements of her mouth and wrongly concludes she's drunk. He is sure this is not the way normal people pray. Pagans are known for their inebriated worship. But Eli doesn't appear to be a gifted psychologist because he doesn't recognize piety when he sees it. And rabbinical scholars later on regarded Hannah as a model of authentic prayer. And they said hers was a prayer of the heart. And so Eli rebukes Hannah, accusing her of violating the decorum of this sacred place. But Hannah's not intimidated. She's more attentive to her heart. She's not caring much about the tabernacle liturgy or the hierarchy of the priesthood. She dismisses his charges, and she asserts her right to pray without a script. In her own way, in her own words, in her own time, laying out the pain of her life, just laying it out there before the Lord. You want a model or a description or an example of real heartfelt prayer in Scripture, read 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. If you have pain in your life, and you've experienced disappointment, discouragement, or loss in your life, take those two chapters, read them thoroughly, and then lay that pain of yours out before the Lord. Hannah firmly responds. Now let's look at verse 15 and 16 as she responds to Eli. No, I'm not drunk. No, my Lord, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer or anything else. I was pouring out my soul, this is fervency, in prayer. 16 says, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli, struck by her daring, to his credit, he accepts her explanation and he puts a blessing on her. And then he adds his own prayer to hers. In verse 17, Hannah graciously accepts the blessing from Eli. In verse 18, Eli answers, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Now the thing is changing. Now the tide has turned. And in verse 18, it says, her face is no longer what? Her face was no longer... Thank you. I'm sure you're still there. She said... 18, please. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way, and she, she hadn't been eating, she'd been fasting, and she ate something, and her face was what? No longer downcast. I think her depression was leaving. I believe her burden was lighter. I believe her broken heart was mending. Yet at this point, nothing has happened. Can we look now at verse 19? 
Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. And Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. You're a good, good father. And I'm loved by you. You're such a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. And verse 20 says, So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. That's what Samuel means. Given of the Lord. There's no longer a downcast face. All we're told is, in the course of time, God created new life in her, and that new life was the prophet Samuel, who will become one of the great prophets of Israel. It's been said that, this is a phenomenal statement, and if you're note-taking, I highly recommend this one. With my apologies to Pamela Reeve. Faith is confidence in God's faithfulness to us, in an uncertain world, on an uncharted course, toward an unknown future. Can I say something that just might catch you a little bit off guard, so I don't want, I want to, I want to kind of creep up on you, I don't want to just blast you with this. Sometimes living by faith, means living with no to the answer of our prayers. We try to accept that God's answers are wiser than our prayers, but we struggle with many things we can't understand. God God doesn't want or doesn't owe us an explanation, but listen, He loves us. Are we still going to sing it? You're a good, good father. Unconditionally, are we going to sing that? You're a good, good father. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. And I'm loved by you. Even if the answer is no, I'm loved by you. Even if I don't understand your direction, I'm loved by you. That's who I am. God doesn't owe us an explanation of anything. He loves us. He wants us to trust Him. That's all. Even when He is silent on an issue. Now, coming back to today, motherhood is a blessing. But couples without children are blessed in other ways. And we rightly honor motherhood. And we appreciate all that our moms have done for us. Don't show it. Don't tell it. Don't express it like we ought to. I won't ask if that's true or not. I've lived enough life to know. But we know that fulfillment in life doesn't hinge on the ability to procreate. God has a plan for our lives. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? With children, with a marriage partner, or without either of those, God has a plan for our lives. Now, I want to turn the corner slightly. I want to remind us all, I want to bring everybody into this circle, that God's holy word says much about living worry-free. 
and with due respect, I think mothers, for good reasons, tend to generally worry much more than others. So on this great Mother's Day morning, I want to, I want to look seriously at how to overcome unhappiness and worry that's associated with motherhood, parenthood, and the family dynamic in general. I know many books on marriage and motherhood give as a solution to unhappy wives and mothers the encouragement of just choose to be happy. And many people are unhappy by choice, so they should be able to choose to not be unhappy. But I've also come across unhappy mothers who need more than a volitional choice to be happy. Some mothers are not happy because they live with difficult situations. Keep your eyes straight ahead. Right on me. I get such a kick out of the things you find funny when I'm absolutely 102% dead serious. Other mothers are not happy because they're married to difficult husbands. Keep your elbows to yourself. (laughs) Others are not happy because they are raising difficult children. Furthermore, mature mothers generally do not make happiness their highest priority. That's not your number one priority in life, lady. No, they make raising mature children their highest priority. Now, this doesn't mean that happiness is not a part of a mature parent's experience. Happiness, happiness in motherhood is possible. And often, not as a direct result of mothers pursuing happiness in parenting. It's not because the mother just gets up every day thinking, okay, I've got to work really hard to make, make everybody happy. i just got to get ha- and then I'll get happy. Happiness in motherhood is often influenced by the father in the family. And by the motives of the mother. And those go hand in hand. So... Strap in, okay? Strap in for the ride. Because from here on out, we're going to ask six revealing questions. Three to the fathers, three to the mothers, and they truly deserve honest answers. And discovering your answers to these questions may be the first step toward a happy motherhood, happy fatherhood, happy family living. And the text for Samuel 1 is what it's all about. So mark it well. Make sure you got a tab in there. Make sure you go back to it. Because 1 Samuel 1 says it gives a setting to introduce Samuel who this baby grows up and becomes the last judge of Israel and the beginning of the Israeli monarchy, and it gives insight to the making of a happy mother. You read chapter 2 and you say, wow, look at this. That woman is rejoicing. And if you read the first part of that chapter 2, you're going to see a mother there whose heart now is not full of anguish and pain and tears and unhappiness, but a heart of rejoicing and praise and thanksgiving to God. On the surface, Hannah rejoiced because God answered her prayer for a son. Okay, let's not leave the story there, and let's not couple the few things I've said so far and say, that's it, that's, that's all there is to it. No, it isn't. Hannah's unhappiness, I'm going to repeat this, Hannah's unhappiness was not caused by her barrenness. 
Hannah's unhappiness resulted from the tension brought on by her husband's other wife. Elkanah loved Hannah more than he loved Peninnah, but he, it's such an awful name I can't even pronounce it, but he married Peninnah because he wanted children. It was such a cultural thing. It was such a status symbol thing. And in this, we see a husband's action, a husband's action, greatly influencing the happiness, or unhappiness in this case, of his wife. So my first three questions are to husbands and dads. So sit up straight, take a deep breath, suck it in. Here you go. And if you want to be married to a happy wife, as much as it depends on you, and sometimes her happiness is not dependent on you, I know, then ask yourselves these three questions. And guys, let's be gut honest here. First question. Are there culturally acceptable... I'm losing people already. Are there culturally acceptable but not biblically acceptable behaviors I am practicing? I will explain that. I said it before. I'm going to say it again. Elkanah practiced polygamy. Marrying more than one woman was acceptable in the ancient culture at that time. It still is in much of that part of the world. In order to form alliances and to produce children for perpetuating the husband's name and for pressing and, and passing on his estate and all the rest of it. But the Bible's clear that God intended marriage to consist of how many men? One. And how many women? One man and... Good, you got it. Did you, do you see it now? Elkanah did what was culturally acceptable but not biblically acceptable. So as a, as a result... He brought great hurtful tension and competition to his wife and family. See, now, in our culture, if we made a comparison, we could say, well, gambling to a lot of people and by the culture is just acceptable. And lust is acceptable. Matter of fact, it's everywhere and it's out there. Covetousness is acceptable. And workaholism is acceptable. And male pride is acceptable. And all these things and these practices are culturally acceptable, acceptable, but none of these practices are biblically acceptable. Because they produce financial, emotional, time and relational tension and competition for the wife and for the family. And if we hope to experience happiness in our marriage and family, we need to stop doing what the Bible makes clear is unacceptable. Answer that question, guys. First question. Second question. Am I focusing on sacrifice to God rather than obedience to God? And I've seen a good number of men who get trapped here. I want to say this in his defense. I believe he was a good man, Elkanah. He was a spiritual man. He was a pious man. He faithfully sacrificed to God at the appropriate times. He went to the feasts. He went to the religious festivals. He made his way uh, to Shiloh every year. And he made offerings and sacrifices. But he didn't obey God's instruction for marriage. And he violated God's marriage covenant for, for one man and... One woman. In 1 Samuel 15, if you go to the 15th chapter, verse 22, here's Samuel, the, the, the prophet, saying this. This is Samuel himself. He says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is 
better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. I want you to hear this very carefully. A husband can lead Bible studies. He can lead a church. He can lead worship. He can serve as a ministry team leader. He can give generous amounts of time and money and still not be obedient to God. See, to sacrifice for God is pleasing to God. And all those things I listed would be pleasing to God, but God is more pleased by our obedience to his commands, including his commands regarding the marriage covenant. God commands us to love our wife. How? How? God has commanded us to love our wife, our wife. How are we to love our wife, guys? Who knows? That was good. Anyone else? No, I don't want women answering. You should know to keep them in line, but the men are supposed to be answering here. This is abysmal. So we are to love our wife. How, guys? As Christ loved the church. Don't be ashamed to say that. And when you, I know why it's hard to say, because whoo, that is a standard. That is a standard that gave everything, everything, every ounce of blood. Just look at the cross is all you have to do. You don't need a theological course on this. We are to love our wife as Christ loved the church. Look at the cross. We're to prefer harmony, humility, and our wife's interests above our own. To sacrifice to God is good, but to obey God in all matters is better. And a Obeying God in your marriage and family can bring true happiness to you and to your spouse and to your children, and the way I read my Bible, to your children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. Third question. How am I responsible for any negative emotions my wife may be feeling? Can I just repeat the story a little bit? Elkanah favored Hannah over Peninnah, over the other wife. He gave Hannah, the Bible says, twice as much of everything as he gave to the other wife. He wanted to cheer Hannah up. He thought he could be the solution to Hannah's happiness, but he never considered himself to be the cause of her unhappiness. Guys, Sir, have you ever asked yourself whether you are responsible for the negative emotions your wife may be feeling? Maybe she's ang- it's anger. She's angry. Maybe she's depressed, as Hannah was. Maybe she's exhausted. Maybe she's insecure. The number one need of a woman is security. I've asked young men getting ready to marry. How many times? A hundred times. You know the number one need of a woman. And some of the answers you get are really, really good, but they're all wrong. The number one need of a woman is security. And when a woman's not secure, she's insecure. 
And when a woman's insecure, she's easily angered, she's easily depressed, she's most of the time exhausted, and she's feeling bad for you right now because you don't understand any of this. And as her husband, what are you doing or not doing or this very day, May the 14th, 2017, going to start doing to meet your wife's real needs? She may not need anything more than a loving, caring, moral, responsible, helpful husband. We need to take responsibility for our insensitivity, guys. We need to take responsibility for our absence, guys. We need to take responsibility for our selfishness, guys. We can begin by asking, how am I and in what ways am I responsible for the negative emotions my wife is feeding? I have dear friends, even in this church, who when we start a conversation, the first thing is about her and all the things that are wrong with her. And if she'd only, her, and if she wouldn't, her. Well, I'm going to ask you this question then, if you're one of those bright boys. How am I responsible? You ask yourself that question for the negative emotions you're telling me about in your wife's life. When we find that out, we're on the track to getting it right. Not before. Now that the husbands and wives, the husbands and, and, uh, excuse me, the husbands and the dads are completely devastated, girls. And they're pondering, some of them are still pondering the first question. I definitely lost some of them on the second, and people started moving around before I got to the third. There are three questions for you, dear ladies, wives and moms. Ready? Are you ready, ladies? Are you ready, ladies? Are you ready, ladies? Help me. I'm on your side. First question, here's your question to yourself. How do I deal with any, any dissatisfaction in my marriage or family? Eyes front. The Bible does not record, let's stay with Hannah. She teaches us so much, so much, so much, so much. The Bible does not record that Hannah blamed or nagged Elkinah for her barrenness, but that doesn't mean she didn't some. <laughs> I almost think it would be pretty unusual if she didn't complain to him now and then about that other woman. Ladies, am I right? Is that the female brain working? Yeah, okay. Got in touch with my feminine side there for a minute. Woo! But here's what the Bible does record. is that Hannah prayed earnestly to God and she worked with Elkanah to conceive a child. And listen to this. After she prayed for a son and promised God he could have the son, she and her husband did some family planning. Woo! I love what Steve Brown wrote. He said, and I quote, Prayer without action is daydreaming. But action without prayer is stupidity. Love it. Prayer without action is daydreaming. Action without prayer is stupidity. 
So in dealing, ladies, with your dissatisfaction in marriage or family, have you prayed persistently? Have you taken appropriate actions? Because appropriate actions will bring the right people to the problem. Appropriate actions do not violate the marriage covenant or the individual's rights. And appropriate actions will protect you. And appropriate actions will bring other people into your circle that can help you, not hinder you. And appropriate actions do not disregard God. And appropriate actions include prayer, which brings heaven's resources to earth, to you. Oh, what a good, good father you are. Oh, what a good, good father. Oh, what a good, good father. That's who you are. And I am so loved by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. And those appropriate actions bring God into the equation. How are you dealing with your dissatisfaction? And probably, I'm not saying everyone, but probably everyone, especially every lady, Feel some dissatisfaction at some time or another in marriage or with family life. Now, if you have any of that dissatisfaction or ever have had or think you might have, just be transparent. Just be transparent. Don't go into hiding. Just be transparent. Second question. Is what I'm seeking from God, this is a good one, purely selfish? I don't know why. I don't know for sure why God did not give Hannah a child previously all those years. I don't know why. Maybe Hannah wanted a child for selfish reasons. She may have wanted a child, especially a male child, so that she could be culturally accepted. I don't know. Or maybe she thought that would build her sense of self-worth as a woman. Or maybe she thought, yeah, this will be my answer to her. I don't know. But let me tell you, by the time Eli the priest accused her of being drunk, Hannah had worked through any wrong motives, if she ever had any. And she promised, she promised, she promised that if God would give her a son, she would give that son to God for his service. If what you are seeking, ladies, from God is purely selfish, you will not be happy even if, when or if you receive what you're asking for. I'd like to repeat that because you never heard me say that before. And I think it has a ring to it. And it has deep truth as well. If what you are seeking from God is purely selfish, then you will not be happy even when you receive what you ask for. And here's why. Because selfishness fosters discontentment. It doesn't fulfill discontentment. And the answer is not in seeking more earnestly, but learning contentment or focusing, if you will, on serving God and serving others. When you're serving God and serving others, your, your, your interest and attention and energy is all off yourself. Jesus said it himself. He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. True happiness is a result of what you can give, not what you can get. Check your motives for what you seek from God. If you're sitting here today, man or woman, and you're seeking something, and you really want something, and you're asking God, as well, check your motive. 
Why are you asking for that? Why do you want to get that? Because if you're asking out of selfish motive, you're not going to be contented even when you get it. That's a biblical principle. So Hannah rejoiced because she saw her son Samuel as a gift from God for her to take care of temporarily. More parents need to understand this concept. She could let him go for God's purpose. She knew what God gave to her was to benefit God's kingdom, not just herself. Now, ladies, how you see your children and your role as a mother will influence your happiness. So I want to ask you the third question. Do I see myself as owner? Because I know we use those words my and mine an awful lot. Or do we see ourselves as a steward, wives and moms, of what God gives to us? Hannah realized this child was given to her temporarily. I use the word loaned. And she was going to give him back to be used for God. And how you see your children and your role as a mother will influence your happiness. If your children and your role as a mother are there to make you happy, you'll be quite unhappy when your children leave or when you're not in your role as a mother. But if you see that you are temporarily entrusted to take care of the children and to train them up to be used by God, then you can be happy however and wherever and whenever God leads their lives or your life for that matter, no matter, no matter, no matter where it might be if they're serving God. Several years ago, in a, in, in, and it was a number of years ago now, in an interview during his, his, his life-ending battle with cancer, the great theologian Francis Schaeffer said this, and I quote because it's worthy, the only way to be foolishly happy in this world is to be young enough, well enough, and have money enough that's the foolish kind of happiness. He's not done. This guy understood the meaning of Christianity like nobody that's ever lived in our time or even close to it. He said, that's the foolish kind of happiness that I believe some Christians present as Christianity. Wow. I had to read that several times before I could digest it. Yeah. My friends, I hope you still are. What I've shared with you today is different than what you're going to hear in a run-of-the-mill Mother's Day service. I could have stood up here and given you a lot of examples of life with my mother over the many years. Some of them you would have laughed. Some of them you would have cried. (laughs) Some of them you would have said, that poor woman. But I want to tell you this. What I've shared with you today is not the foolish kind of happiness. Schaefer had it right. 
but a happiness, listen carefully, that comes as a result of maturing in attitudes and actions. You see, God, our God, has no vested interest or delight in unhappy mothers or unhappy fathers or unhappy children. God does have a vested interest in mature mothers and mature fathers because God entrusts parents with his gift of children. So my closing greeting to all mothers and all ladies under the sound of my voice who are in attendance today or listening by some other means, I say in the precious love of God, happy Mother's Day. Happy Wife Day. Happy Unclaimed Blessing Day. That'll click in when you get home. Happy Ladies' Day. Today. Every day. I love you. And God bless you. Thank you for listening. The riches of this world will fade. The treasures of our God remain. Here I empty myself to all this world, nothing, and find everything in Try